You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. Damn, y'all. Damn, damn, double damn. Double damn. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another glorious episode. Oh, shoot. Makes me just delighted. (laughs) So last last week, man, I went really hard against some urban legends stuff. Oh, yeah. Some candy tampering urban legends. I'm all about keeping kids safe Mm -hmm. and taking care of everybody and making sure everybody's having a really good time on Halloween. But this week, we're going to begin writing our how-to pamphlet on how to eat all the children in town. That sounds perfect. Yeah? I want nothing more. Just devour those souls. (laughs) Come on, little children. And today, I'm Kaylin. And today, you're Kaylin. Just today. (laughs) Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, I'm Christian. (laughs) And we're just very excited, maybe too excited. Oh, man. Yeah, we are. Because today, we're talking about one of the most anticipated episodes of That's Pretty Dark, Hocus Pocus. We're going to poke the hocus, y'all. We're going to hocus focus <laughs> <laughs> on hocus pocus today. What's, what's hocus focus? <laughs> We've been immersing ourselves in Halloween since the beginning of September, basically. Weeks. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. just, it, it feels very good to be here now with you. I never wanted to end. Hocus pocus to me and to many people is one of the most sacred of the Halloween films. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me almost untouchable. I've had a lot of anxiety about covering this movie because it's so it's such a part it's so integral to halloween for so many people absolutely it is and i also feel like after we've just had you know three weeks of halloween history a lot of these things are going to mean more to us than they even would have you know prior so i'm glad that we did it in this order right i've been catching so many parallels hey good yeah but without further ado let's hop on our brooms shall we let's hop let's hop on our brooms so hocus pocus follows the story of a Curious youngster who moves to Salem where he struggles to fit in before awakening a trio of diabolical witches that were executed in the 17th century. Mm. And if you guessed that that was the IMDb summary, then you're right. <laughs> and it's really not their worst. <laughs> I was about to say. I've heard much worse from I don't know IMDb. If c- curious boy. If I was going to write it, I probably would have included something about Danny or Banks or the Black Flame Candle. Yeah. But in this movie, the family moves to the East Coast from California just in the nick of time. For Halloween. Mm -hmm. So the film is rated PG and it was released theatrically on July 16th, 1993, which is the same day as Free Willy. (laughs) Oh, really? Apparently it was released in the summer. There are lots of rumors around why this is, but it seems like it was to capitalize on kids being home for the summer. They also didn't want to compete with themselves when they released Nightmare Before Christmas in Halloween season of that year. That was the same year? Same year. Oh my God. Uh, Hocus Pocus came in fourth place in the box office in its opening weekend, and it grossed about $8.1 million and about $45 million in total theatrically on a $28 million budget. So Mm. not the greatest, not the worst, but it just wasn't really the Mm -hmm. boom that I think they hoped to see. And that was basically all she wrote for the release. I could see that. Yeah. It dropped out of the top 10 within two weeks. Really? Wow. So, Which is quick. I could see a lot of people... uh, 
telling a lot of other people not to let their kids see it. Sure. Just because of the witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. Reasons. Mm -hmm. Reasons. If you're a fan of Hocus Pocus, you probably do know that it wasn't received super well. Mm. Um, There was a lot of critical confusion around the film. It really only started to gain traction through home video and maybe even more significantly, surprisingly, um, TV airings. Oh, yeah. Because Mm -hmm. according to Wikipedia, it is still one of the most watched television reruns every single October with like millions of people tuning in every single time that it airs, which is a rarity for TV, especially nowadays. Yeah, that's still happening. Wow. Yeah, still. Hmm. And it's been raking in the books in home sales during Halloween at pretty much every season since it was released on DVD in 2002. Hmm. And that really ramped up in 2008. And it has made over $1 million every Halloween season since 2011. That's wild. So it's even more like gaining more popularity now. Do you know if it would have been popularized during like the 13 nights of Halloween, the Freeforms thing? Mm -hmm. Because I remember watching it during that. But then I was like, but I don't know, it's Disney. I don't know if they had much crossover back then or whatever. Yes, I'm definitely going to get into some of that. But yes, it was totally ABC and Disney and they picked it up and ran with it. Because that's where I watched it Me too. every year. Me too. And then we ended up recording it on uh, VHSs because we would record from the TV. On your own personal recorded yeah, VHS tape. with <laughs> other scribbled out things we recorded over. Exactly. And then, no, but this is Hocus Pocus. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and they want to say that millennials are like killing everything nowadays. But we single-handedly have saved Hocus Pocus. <laughs> so I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> yeah, we brought it back from the grave. If you ask me, and probably most of their producers now, they would probably say that releasing it in the summer was a mistake. Yeah. They kind of missed the mark not releasing it during Halloween. For sure. They probably could have saved themselves a lot of money if they'd just gone straight to home video with it rather than doing that, or TV, rather than doing the whole box office thing. Hmm. But this was kind of the days when a cast like that and a budget like that pretty much was guaranteed. To go to the box office. Yeah. I think that would have been a mistake to go straight to home video or whatever, but definitely release in like September. At least that, Or something. Yeah, I don't know. And I really personally can't imagine. It happened for a lot of our, you know, 90s filmmaker, the people that we loved in that scene Mm -hmm. because they were kind of ahead of their time and they only found success with this movie nine to 10 years after they made it. Yeah. Wow. So for those nine to 10 years, it really wasn't talked about it just kind of faded man and then to have it come back now is wild <laughs> what a nice surprise that would be to be like holy shit <laughs> this thing <laughs> this i thing made back in made. 1993 <laughs> maybe that'll happen for us one day <laughs> right maybe so Yay. one can only hope maybe but i'm gonna have a lot more to say about this and about the way that the cast and crew reacted to the film and the reception of the film in part two sweet. so sweet we'll put a pin in that and we'll come back to it but I did want to kick things off and get into the nostalgia spirit by asking you, Christian, like you were saying, Hmm. what are your earliest or first memories of watching Hocus Pocus? Um, So I remember, I don't know how old I would have been, but I remember seeing the trailer for it with my mom and being like just mesmerized by the magic. She could tell it was like fixed on it. And she was like, Mm -hmm. that's pretty cool, huh? You want to watch that? Wow. So we made it a point to like watch it. And I was brave enough to like do it. (laughs) And I don't remember my first time watching it. You were really young though, huh? I would have been really, really young. Yeah. Uh, Because when it came out, I was only two. Right. Um, So I I can't imagine I saw it then. I just know that from there, it became a regular staple in our house. We watched it every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We probably watched it not even around Halloween time. Probably. Yeah. But. Because it was just one of those classic. Yeah. It was that lovely 
um, nostalgic balance of just pure amusement, but also it was hard to go to sleep after watching it, <laughs> but loved it. I've always loved this yeah. movie. Well, I have kind of a different take on it. You mm -hmm. know, when I was first watching it, I didn't get to it until it was much closer to like Y2K. Okay. And that was when Disney Channel and ABC Family, um, their 13 Nights of Halloween, like you were saying, that's when they picked it up more so. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same story that a lot of people our age share, honestly. They saw it on TV first. Yeah. And I remember that my little sister, she's two years younger than me, I remember that she insisted on watching this movie every single time it came on mm -hmm. for all of those marathons. I get that. All of those Halloweens. I was like right in between Max and Danny's ages. Yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> this might give me some emails, but during that first couple Halloween seasons when we had, you know, the opportunity to just watch it at our leisure, we were old enough to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really took the time to sit down and appreciate this film. And part of the reason for that... <laughs> Part of the reason for that is my little sister was imitating a lot of the characters that she saw on TV at the time. Mm. And so she just for the entire month of October would pretty much imitate Sarah Sanderson. Gotcha. And she'd run around being like, amok, 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 just constantly. So she's like, I don't know, six, years <laughs> old. It became her movie. Old. And so yeah. it's natural. You had to, you had to hate it. Did it did not make me really eager <laughs> to watch yeah. it with her. <laughs> um, I get that. I get that. At some point I gave in, obviously, and I'm pretty sure that both she and I now own like several copies of the DVD and right. we like love it. <laughs> and this is one of the very few times in our lives when I will credit her with like being on board and yeah. before it was cool, you know, <laughs> she got me into something versus she the opposite. She was super hipster about it. I have a lot to unpack regarding production, but not only that, but the story of how it came to be at all. Mm -hmm. I was very, very, very excited to find that they just recently, because of all the Hocus Pocus 2 media, yeah. they did an interview with The Wrap and David Krishner, the producer, yeah. talks through the whole thing. So I have a lot of really fun Sweet. details that I had never heard before this. And actually this article was only written like the day before I started writing my notes. Hmm. Like it had just been published. Wow. Okay. Serendipity. Lots of up-to-date information then. There is also a really cool behind-the-scenes short called Hocus Pocus Begin the Magic. And a lot of that is available to watch online. It's available with one of the DVD releases. Hmm. And then they actually have a lot of these clips on Disney Plus now, which I did not realize prior to doing <laughs> my notes. So if you happen nice. to watch the trivia and tricks or tricks and trivia version on Disney Plus, please know that I did all of this research prior to even knowing that that existed. <laughs> I did not just watch that and pull from it. I swear to you. I can also vouch for that. Yeah. Uh, the authenticity of that statement. I found out that existed very recently mm -hmm. and was very surprised. But I, I still have, you know, a lot to say that, that wasn't covered in that. But it is still a fun watch, especially if you have like a Hocus Pocus watch party this Halloween. Mm. Check that one out because there's trivia. And not only that, listener... But if you listen to this episode, then you watch the movie with the trivia, you can impress all of your friends because you're going to know all of the answers. <laughs> and then you can like afterward when they're like, oh my God, how'd you know that? You can be like, I listened to the I best it on that podcast ever. <laughs> totally. So it's really more like a, a marketing event for us. Brand ambassador. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can be a That's Pretty Dark podcast You ambassador. can be <laughs> That's you. Pretty Dark brand ambassador. It's an opportunity. Think about it. Honestly. <laughs> We appreciate it, by the way, when you do share with your friends. Yes, honestly, it's the best. So, like I said, the producer really that propelled this movie into existence, his name was David Krishner. Class, how do we know David Krishner? I'm going to guess the page master. That's right. We know him from the page master. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's obnoxious. I'll stop. <laughs> 
If you listen to our Page Master episode, uh, he was also a producer for that, and we got into a lot of David Krishner's career on that episode. We talked about the nitty-gritty of his involvement with Page Master, including how he lost that settlement with the WGA because right. he claimed to write it, even though the actual writer was awarded the settlement. Right, so we weren't a fan of yeah. him for the Page Master. Yeah, this wasn't a great look for Krishner, honestly, Page Master. Mm. But I, I try not to let that color my opinion of him, and hopefully you can do the same, because clearly he had a hand in a lot of the magic of our childhood, Yeah, even if it is sometimes unclear what that hand was doing. <laughs> <laughs> hand check. Hand check. <laughs> No, we're very grateful for him because, you know, he's done more than we ever have. And I think that he mm. really put his stamp on our childhood in a lot of ways. He was a writer and creator behind An American Tale. Mm. He was involved with Child's Play, The Addams Family, Once Upon a Forest, Flintstones movie, Cats Don't Dance, The Bride of Chucky, and so many more. Mm. He's like a self-proclaimed, you know, Halloween freak. He loves Halloween and his whole family did as well. And that's kind of how this all got started. Yeah. So in the short, he describes coming up with a story for the film when he was sitting outside with his daughter. She was like very young at the time. She was like four. Mm -hmm. Now she's in her 40s. But she was sitting outside with him and a black cat walked by. And he started making up a story about how the cat used to be a boy but was transformed by three witches 300 years ago. Hmm. And I feel like that's pretty cute. <laughs> and I hope and I do believe that that is probably how it happened. And in that interview with the rap, he talked about how his family was all into Halloween. He, he called them, he said they were like the Adams family. Yeah. That isn't surprising because of his list of interests and credits. But he said, he said, while a bedtime story about children having the life sucked out of them probably doesn't meet the standards of gentle parenting today, <laughs> it was a world that he and his kids both loved and they were able to bond over. And luckily we loved it too. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you did too, listener. Oh yeah. So David Krishner was developing this story and he kind of had Disney's interest in the film at this point after he'd just done American Tale. Yeah. And he brought the idea to a guy named Mick Garris, who was a horror writer at the time. And Mick kind of fashioned that first draft of the screenplay. Hmm. And it was then purchased by Disney in 1984 after they had this very infamous pitch meeting. Yeah. It was very theme heavy. They had uh, witches' brooms and hats <laughs> and candy all over the table, yeah. lots of Halloween decor, and he said 15 pounds of candy corn wow, just all over nice. the conference tables. So Disney bought it, and at the time they called it Disney's Halloween House. <laughs> okay, weird. Mick Garris was also quoted in that article. I'll link to it somewhere. It's, like, fascinating. Yeah. Um, but he said, Originally, it was almost exactly what you see on the screen, except it was a little bit darker and the kids were 12. Hmm. He said, you know, when I wrote it, 12 years old is that time when your life really changed and the things that you embrace at 12 are the things that stick with you for the rest of your life, mm -hmm. particularly movies, books, and TV shows and stories. And I could not agree more with that. Yeah, he's, he was right. Yeah. Leave me to my Hey Arnold and my Simple Plan and my Avril Lavigne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was even the sweet spot when I was kind of finding this film, too, mm -hmm. around that age, if not a little bit younger. That would have been a cool version. Right? They're all 12. It's more like a Stranger Things sort of vibe. And it's darker? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll take that all day. And he also said that Halloween has a much deeper uh, resonance to a 12-year-old than to a 16-year-old who was just going out and stealing the 12-year-old's candy. And he said, really, what he wrote originally was just a little bit darker. He said he came up with the darkness of Billy Butcherson and his head coming off and all that, which is still comedic, but in a darker mode, yeah. he said. Yeah. And I think that is the spirit of this movie. That's cool. This is, however, where Steven Spielberg 
enters the chat. <laughs> he always just like passes through every room, doesn't he? He's just like, you're making a movie? He does. But that's the thing. That's really kind of how this happened, because this is also more accurately where he exits the chat. Um, because in that same article, and I'm kind of glad I found this before we covered An American Tale ourselves, because it feeds into that production as well. Sweet. All but right. David Krishner credits Steven Spielberg for giving him his first big break, which was working with him to produce An American Tale, and therefore was one of the most important catalysts for Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was like, you know, one of the more famous Disney executives of the time. Mm -hmm. We've talked about him before. But for him to end up wanting Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the article... David Krishner said that he presented an American tale to Jeffrey Katzenberg prior to making an American tale. Jeffrey said, and I quote, who the F is going to go see a film about a Jewish mouse? <laughs> and Krishner said that he responded. He, he edited that, by the way. This was Krishner editing yeah, Katzenberg's words. Sure. And then he said in response, well, who's going to see a film about a wooden puppet? <laughs> hey, there you go. He said it's where you take the characters and the art and the emotions that's where the story is. And apparently Katzenberg was like, nice try. Thanks anyway. Don't care. See you later. Wow. And that was the end of Disney potentially taking an American tale. Jeez. Krishner was very fortunate because Steven Spielberg felt differently and he bought the film. And that's how an American tale came to be. Hmm. Very interesting. But here in our Hocus Pocus timeline, we have once again a bit of confusion on the part of David Krishner in his memory. Hmm. Because the actual sequence of events isn't super clear. But in Mick Garris's mind, the writer that I was talking about, he said that he thinks Spielberg was at that pitch meeting with all the candy and everything. And he loved the idea, but he passed on the project because Disney was involved. Hmm. And at the time, Disney and Steven's company, Amblin Entertainment, were in a feud over the character of Roger Rabbit. Right, right. So he, he thought that Spielberg heard the pitch and was like, Disney wants this one, I'm out, basically. Yeah. But... David Krishner remembers this very differently. He thinks that Steven Spielberg never actually heard the pitch, which is kind of sad. Yeah, geez. But he says he remembers this very well because at the Amblin Entertainment Christmas party, uh, Steven Spielberg's producing partner, who is the leader of Lucasfilm now, Kathleen Kennedy, mm -hmm. she came up to Krishner and she said, like, you really, you really hurt Steven, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Krishner said that she told him, you know, after he gave you your first film and your first opportunity, he was really hurt that you didn't even bring Hocus Pocus to him. And you went right to Disney, who was kind of his enemy at the time. Yeah. And David Krishner says that he felt tears in his eyes, you know, at this Christmas party. He said it was a really painful memory for him mm -hmm. because he, he upset Steven and he felt like he owed his whole career to Steven Spielberg. Sure, yeah. For giving him this opportunity. And then he's gone and kind of betrayed him a little bit. Yeah. So he, so that's what he did. He just never realized that it would hurt. He didn't mean to do it, right? He, it just kind of happened that way. Yeah. But he fully huh. believes, you know, that Steven Spielberg was never given the pitch because, you know, he already had Disney kind of on the hook. Hmm. In this instance, I think I'm inclined to believe David Krishner because I feel like you don't forget that sort of a confrontation at a Christmas party. <laughs> right. Especially not when you're being told that you've offended Steven Spielberg. Yeah, it's not something I would ever be able to let go of. Like, it could still be true that he heard the pitch at some point and he passed because Disney was on the hook. Uh, but David still says he maintains or he believes that 
he just never was given the opportunity. Yeah, it could be that he was like, he heard the pitch, but Disney was involved, but he was still hurt because it went to Disney. Because it went to Disney. And then he just heard it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. However it happened, Disney got to it first and that was his, that was the core of his problem. Yeah, yeah. But now it's really hard to imagine it being anything other than a Disney movie, especially with the way that they've incorporated into the parks Mm -hmm. and, and everything else. So I can't imagine it having been a Steven Spielberg movie. Right. I think it could have been maybe a little bit more of that darker version because it could have been a bit more like the Goonies. Yeah. Because it would have been been. more mature. I think you're Um, right. I think it would have been more mature as an Amblin movie. It would have been good. Like E.T. meets Goonies, add witches, and you've got Hocus Pocus. Yeah, that's pretty true, actually. A darker Hocus Pocus. It's interesting to think about what could have been with that because they rewrote I'm about to tell you, actually, (laughs) and I'm sure none of these things will surprise you if you follow our show or, you know, 80s and 90s entertainment at all, because around 12 writers took stabs at Hocus Pocus while it was in development. Yeah. And it was in development for eight years. That's a long time. So that should ring some labyrinth bells for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Disney brought in a writer named Neil Cuthbert, who had very few other credits. He did St. Elsewhere. And The Return of the Swamp Thing, which were both 80s movies. Yeah. Disney brought him in to insert more comedic relief and to, you know, kind of lighten the film up. And he came out with the screenplay credit. Hmm. And he's also credited with the film's title because he wrote the line, it's just a bunch of Hocus Pocus. I was wondering where that came from. That was Neil Cuthbert. The Disney Trick or Treat uh, cartoon with Donald Duck and his nephews. Mm -hmm. That which says Hocus Pocus Mm -hmm. as part of her, you know, magic spell. Yeah. So I I don't know where that term originated, but it was used back in the 50s. You don't know where the term Hocus Pocus originated? Is it Macbeth? Am I an idiot? (laughs) It's not Macbeth, um, but that is a really good guess. Like with most things that are affiliated with magic, it's not super clear, Mm -hmm. but I've always wondered about this myself as well. But Hocus Pocus, they've basically always been magic words. Hmm. It was recorded as early as the 1620s. Oh, wow. When Hocus Pocus with A's H-O-C-A-S-P-O-C-A-S. Hocus Pocus. Was a common name for a magician or a juggler because of the incantations that they would say before they would perform Hmm. in an effort to blind the audience to their tricks. So they would say that as part of an incantation to get you to kind of fall into that suspension of disbelief. So like Alakazam. Yeah. During that time, it was kind of- Hocus Pocus. Yes. It was considered sort of a spell Mm. to get you to to fall into their magic. I like that a lot. You might like it even more after this. Uh, A lot of people think that it was a mockery of Latin and the sacramental blessing from the Catholic Mass, which was Hocus Corpus Meum, (laughs) which translates to this is my body. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay. It could have even been an ironic use of the Latin phrase hici s doctus, which means here is the learned man, or hissy s doctus, H-I-C-C-E, hmm. here is the learned man. Interesting. The British slang hanky-panky from the mid-1800s is also derived from this, which at the time it meant trickery, which I think that has kind of shifted. <laughs> and <laughs> Trickery, right. Hokey pokey at the time oh, yeah. meant fraud or deception, and hokey carries that through now. Like you'd say someone's hokey if yeah. it's just like kind of deceitful. Do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around. What is the origin of this shit? Well, that seems to me, thinking in these terms, that seems to me like a way to confuse or distract somebody. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which it is. The hocus, the, wow, the hocus pocus. The hokey pokey. <laughs> the hokey pokey is kind of that type of thing. That's the thing that you do with kids. You get your wiggles out, you know? Well, I'll tell you, my hanky panky is real confusing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah, so that's 
where Hocus Pocus potentially comes from. That's fascinating. I'm glad you asked. I feel like I should know that. I feel like that's something I should already know about. <laughs> I, I felt the same way when I was looking it up. So. But this is a safe place. It's okay to not know things here. We're it is here okay to, learn. to not know things. And we're here to learn. And hopefully, you know, we can teach you something. Mm -hmm. And if we don't know, we'll Google it real quick while we're sure uh, recording. And you may or may not hear the Googling. <laughs> tactic. No, I cut all that out. <laughs> I want you guys to think we're real smart. But to be perfectly clear, Kayla did not just Google that. That was part no, of no. her research. I knew all of this. this is <laughs> I wasn't that trying I, to like make a joke about <laughs> the quality of her. Kaylin was Googling her. Nope. You asked and I answered because I happened to already have it in my notes. Once the script was in the works, sort of, Disney brought on Kenny Ortega, mm -hmm. who had been doing music videos throughout the 80s, both as a director and choreographer. Shoot. Uh, he was also fresh off of the original Newsies direction. Oh, really? They brought him yes. on. Yes, God, I mm -hmm. love the Newsies. Yeah. And they brought him on as director for Hocus Pocus. Of course, he went on to do many more Disney projects, including High School Musical and the Descendants series, which I've actually never seen, mm -hmm. but some of your kids probably like out there. Yeah, some people really like that. And I also loved that he also directed 12 episodes of Gilmore Girls. No way! <laughs> yeah. I always see his name as I'm watching it. I hope it's like the 12 purely autumn episodes. I know mm. it's not, but... I, yeah, I really... I, I, I could have looked it up because you and I both care about that now. I care about it so much. It's unreal. Yeah, I know you do, and I'm really glad about it. I'm glad I've converted you. Very much. Supposedly, according to IMDb, he is slated to reboot Dirty Dancing in 2026, hmm. but it feels like they got way in front of that announcement, and I just don't yeah. know if that's... Seems like a long way know. away. But in one of those behind-the-scenes uh, shorts, Bette Midler is talking about his directing style, and she was saying how his choreographer side always would come out as he was directing, <laughs> and he didn't necessarily want the movements to be naturalistic. He wanted it to feel very stylized. Yeah. She said he did a lot of like counting behind the camera when he was directing the witches mm -hmm. to do their gestures and movements, like turn on five, step on eight. Having directed the very little bit that I have, I can see how that kind of skill set would be really helpful. Yeah. It could come in handy on a production like this. And the fact that a lot of the witches' movements are in tandem. Right, right, So you right. really needed it to be very choreographed and you needed to know where the camera would be. Yeah. Speaking of music, <laughs> you know that I also have to discuss the score. Got to. In the case of Hocus Pocus, the score was created by John Debney. His dad actually also worked for Disney. He has like a very long history with the Walt Disney Company. Hmm. Um, he got to work with Richard Sherman on projects. He helped with um, the 2016 Jungle Book, which is really cool. Nice. He has a really long list of credits, actually. Mm -hmm. A bunch of early 80s Disney TV and specials. Dink the Little Dinosaur, which was a cartoon in the 80s. A hmm. uh, pup named Scooby-Doo. Hey. I know what you did last summer. Wow. Polly, My Favorite Martian, Inspector Gadget, The Emperor's New Groove, Spy Kids 1 and 2. <laughs> Pause for applause on that one. No. Princess Diaries 1 and 2, both Bruce and Evan Almighty. Wow, okay. Elf. Oh, shoot. The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the Pacifiers, Athura, the Hannah Montana movie, and so, so many more. Wow. Including returning for... Hocus Pocus 2. Hell of a resume. Yeah. To me, it's kind of fun that the same guy who scored Hocus Pocus also scored The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> it's just good. And I have to also note, apparently James Horner was in talks to do this film at one point, and he didn't. We've talked about him some before. But while he didn't score this film, he did write Sarah's song, Come Little Children. Did he? That was written by James Horner. Okay. I've always loved that. Hiro Narita was the director of photography. 
And he had several credits of Millennial Note as well. <laughs> um, he DP'd for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Nice. And he did the live action portions of James and the Giant Peach. Oh, shoot. He DP'd the pilot episode of Gilmore Girls. No way. So he and Kenny had that show in common. Wow. Although I don't think Kenny directed the pilot. Is that our first time talking about a cinematographer? It, mm, maybe. Because we've done a lot of animated films. I mean, not that they don't have cinematographers. We've always talked about the director. Yeah, we've sent a focus on the director. I just thought it was important because the look of this film is so, like, specific. Yeah, no. That's something we should probably get into more because most people don't realize that the director of photography, a.k.a. the cinematographer, mm -hmm. actually decides a lot about what a film looks like. A lot about the shots, a lot about the lighting. Yeah. Totally. They just take the director's vision and communicate from a technical standpoint. Well, a lot of times, yeah, the director isn't isn't the technical focus. They're focused on the emotion and the emotion of the actors, which is something I love about directing. And I love when there's a, a technically competent DP to compliment you and balance that out. Right, right. So principal photography for Hocus Pocus began on October 12th, 1992, mm -hmm. and it completed in February of 1993. Okay. And we were asking ourselves as we watched it whether the autumn leaves were authentic. Yeah. It turns out that they, they were, sort of. Yeah. A lot of the daytime scenes were filmed, for the most part, in Salem and Marblehead, Massachusetts. All right. So the principal cast was on location for about two weeks. The majority of the film was shot on sound stages in California. Yeah, yeah. I do know for sure that the cemetery was built on soundstage number two mm -hmm. on the Disney Studios lot in Burbank, California. Okay. So if you ever do that tour, <laughs> I want to know that it was on stage two. Shoot. And some of the outdoor nighttime shots were done in a small neighborhood in Pasadena, California. Okay. From everything that I have read about this film and the people that worked on it, the art department on this film apparently got things very, very right. Uh, according to Vanessa Shaw, who plays Allison in the movie, yeah, she said uh, that Thora, Thora Birch, who plays Danny, she said, Thora and I talk about this, that whenever we smell foliage or dry leaves or a mulchy kind of smell, <laughs> we think of the Hocus Pocus soundstage. Wow. The way that they smelled, smelled like the East Coast. That's awesome. I think that's amazing. That's very cool. That's how you do it right. Uh, the production designer, his name was Bill Sandell. He is a self-proclaimed Halloween freak as well. And he was totally gung-ho for the project from the very beginning. It sounds like he was jockeying for the position of production designer for like five years. Mm -hmm. Well, he had plenty of time. Eight years of pre? Come on. Right, exactly. And he was begging Kenny Ortega to take on the project yeah. and to hire him as production designer because he wanted to do it so badly. That's dope. In the behind-the-scenes short, he discussed the witch's house at length. Mm. They shot there for five weeks, and it was a conglomeration of his own vision with Kenny Ortega yeah. and a lot of the requests from Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy were mixed in. Interesting. Wow. He said the construction of this, it was basically a real house, he said, mm -hmm. that you could take and you could stick on a hillside somewhere and live in it. And he was saying this like in that behind the scenes interview. Right. Yeah. As he was saying it, it was kind of occurring to him. And he was like, which, which I would love to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really sweet. That's cool. I found that he is actually also a member of this crew Facebook group that I'm part of. <laughs> I don't know if you're in that. Oh, which one? I don't know. It's yeah. He commented on a post about Hocus Pocus, and he said that it was probably the most enjoyable film that he ever worked on in his life. He said they had a really great art department, and most of them had just finished doing Newsies with Kenny Ortega. Nice. And then a year later, they came together again for Hocus Pocus. I think that's really cool. He just seems to be the coolest guy. He loves his job, and he loved this job so much. Yeah, that's awesome. The set decorator, her name was Rosemary Brandenburg, 
she served as the art director for the 1985 Teen Wolf. Hmm. And after Hocus Pocus, she went on to do Flintstones and Casper oh and the 1989 Psycho. Wow. She set decked for Castaway, Planet of the Apes, The Ring, <laughs> The Haunted Mansion, Jeez, Transformers, Spider-Man No Way Home, and many more. The Ring. Her most recent project is listed as the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Hmm. So still in production. Yeah. A lot of people are probably familiar with some of the other filming locations around Salem, including the Pioneer Village, which is a recreation of early colonial Salem. Mm -hmm. And that was used for the 1693 scenes. So they actually shot there. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And also, according to Wikipedia, they shot at Old Burial Hill, which they say in the film, mm -hmm. in uh, Marblehead. That's where Max and Ice and Jay, he meets Ice and Jay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Old Town Hall in Salem, where the Halloween party is. Yeah. And Phillips Elementary School, which is where the witches are trapped. Wow. That's cool as crap. The exterior for Max and Danny's house is a private residence on Ocean Avenue in Salem. And a lot of people go and take pictures there, yeah. too. So it's really popular. I also wanted to give a shout out here to the special effects makeup designer. His name is Tony Gardner. Mm -hmm. And he's featured in a lot of the behind the scenes content. He's really funny. Him and Doug Jones, who played Billy, yeah. they were just like cutting up the whole time. Nice. Uh, he's listed as uncredited makeup effects for something you're going to like, the Michael Jackson thriller video. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and he's also done special effects makeup for films like Aliens, uh, Adam's Family Values, The Craft, hmm. Batman and Robin, Bring It On, Jackass. The live-action portions of Osmosis Jones. Wow. 13 Going on 30, Hairspray, <laughs> The Hangover, La La Land, uh, Old, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah. And many more. Uh, also including Hocus Pocus 2. He came back as well. Nice. That's cool. And something really funny that I learned, he did the special effects makeup for the Friends episode, the one with all the Thanksgivings. No way. <laughs> when they go back to, you know. Yeah. When they were younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like I can actually recognize his work knowing that. That's funny. It's crazy. That's cool. I will probably still be able to bring up uh, some production facts here and there in part two and as we go through, but that's right. the bulk of the story of how Hocus Pocus came to be. That's dope. Love that. So now we must transition into our discussion of the cast. Yeah. Because without its leading lady, ladies really, pretty much everybody on the film agrees it never would have been made. Okay. The leadingest lady is, of course, the legendary Bette Midler as Winifred Sanderson. Bet. <laughs> have you been waiting to make that joke? Yeah, for like three days. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was coming too. That's great. Of oh, yeah, of course. So Bette Midler. Bet. She's earned, <laughs> she's earned four Grammy Awards, four Golden Globes, uh, one Tony, and three Emmys. Wow. She's sold more than 15 million albums worldwide. Jeez. So she was obviously, you know, the film's shining star. Yeah. And I'll tell you a little bit about her career as well. Please do, because I've never really known the extent yeah. of what she's done. She was releasing music in the early 70s and performing her cabaret act at a very famous uh, gay men's club, the Continental Bath. I already love this. <laughs> I know. Her piano accompanist that was always with her yeah. was Barry Manilow. No way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she broke into the film industry with a film called The Rose in 1979, which is kind of referenced in some of the dialogue in this movie, All right. which was Sweet. loosely based on the life of Janis Joplin. Hmm. She received a nomination for Best Actress in that role, hmm. and then she went on to, to, to do more comedy. With Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Ruthless People, Outrageous Fortune, and several more. After Hocus Pocus, she went on to do a dozen more movies and a lot of TV appearances. 
Um, she gave performances in films like The First Wives Club and The Stepford Wives. Hmm. And she even made an appearance in Fantasia 2000, which I totally forgot about. No way. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, she's in there. I was just thinking, I've never seen her in anything else. <laughs> really? Never. That's crazy. I only know her from Hocus Pocus. These, her famous movies were in the 80s. More yeah, so. yeah. But I am about to blow your mind if you don't know. There are probably listeners that know this. Yeah. And I only know this because it's one of my very favorite roles and songs in animated film. Okay. <laughs> but I would be remiss not to mention that she lent her voice to a dog named Georgette in Oliver and Company. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Perfect isn't easy, but it's me. That's Bette Midler. We've got to do Oliver and Company soon. Oh, we, we are. That's I cool. can't wait. I've been so excited for Oliver and Company the entire year. Apparently, though, the lead Sanderson sister was originally written uh, to be played by Cloris Leachman. Oh, really? Rest in peace, Cloris. Yeah, R.I.P. And I didn't find information directly stating this, but I and any of my equally dedicated Mary-Kate and Ashley fans out there mm. will assume that she was either already engaged with or had already had her fill of witchy roles after playing the twins' twin aunts oh, yeah. in Double Double Toil and Trouble, which also released in 1993, by the way. Oh, that could have been really weird. So I think that's why she didn't take this role. Yeah. I'm surprised that they were considering her, even though she like had just done that or was doing it at the same time. I think it was just so concurrent, I think, mm -hmm. the production was. Wow. Weird. Probably a good call. Yes. And when Bette expressed interest in the project in 1992, it was basically the driving force that the whole production team needed to get the show on the road. Nice. According to that rap article, uh, Bette Midler told David Krishner that she wanted to get into this role for her daughter because she wanted to see out a project that she could actually watch after a lot of her movies were rated R. Hmm. She was very heavily involved with the look of her character and mentioned in one of those behind-the-scenes shorts that uh, Winifred's hair was inspired by Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. I know exactly what yeah, you can she's picture referencing it, right? now. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and it's kind hmm. of sweet. So Thor Birch, who played Danny, like I said, she yeah. told the rap, this is a direct quote, it was hard to try to play somebody who didn't like her or, you know, detested her really. It was kind of difficult because I was like, yeah, but she's so cool. Why would I hate her? <laughs> <laughs> Thor also told a story about her musicality because there was a time when it was toward the end of production day and they were tired it was when she uh and bet were both suspended in harnesses mm -hmm. and she said that they were both pretty miserable all of a sudden she just started singing mm. it was a big joke with her and gary marshall on the set because he would often tell her he wanted her to sing the wind beneath my wings <laughs> apparently she started singing it and like every a lot of people on the cast have told this story actually in the crew oh nice um but everybody kind of stopped what they were doing and listened to her sing while they were up in harnesses. That's awesome. Thor said it was basically like the push that they all needed to keep going. It encouraged everybody. Man, the mark of a professional. Yeah. She said it was like she was singing to comfort us. Yeah. And that's like one of the, her best memories from set, which is kind of cool. Wow. That's sweet. The other two Sanderson sisters also need very little introduction, but you're going to get some. Please do. By golly, you're going to get some. It wouldn't be a podcast about it if you didn't. <laughs> Uh, Sarah Sanderson is played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Hell yeah. She said that the Sarah character was the most peculiar that she'd ever played. She called her awful, <laughs> yeah. but said that she loved her, ultimately. And while she held many roles, Sarah's probably best known for her role as Carrie Bradshaw in Sex and the City. Uh, which, that kicked off in 1998, and it ran for seven seasons, and there were lots of spinoffs and several films as well. So hmm. it was one of her biggest roles of her career. 98, huh? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why I just always assumed that came before Hocus Pocus. Really? I never thought about I it. I knew that it was like Y2K era. Wow, I guess I did know that. But I haven't I haven't watched all of it either, to be honest. Oh, I've never even seen Sex and the City. I've seen a good bit of it, but not all of it. Yeah. But before Hocus Pocus, she was primarily a TV actress. She had appeared in several series, including Square Pegs, hmm. A Year in the Life, and Equal Justice. And it's kind of funny. It was well known on set that while her, you know, sisters hated all the rigging and the harnesses and everything for all their flying sequences, of which Mm -hmm. there were a lot, by the way, they rigged the hell out of that soundstage. They could fly at almost any angle. Wild. They had it just totally rigged to be a flying set, which is crazy to me. I mean, it it looks pretty legit, so I'm glad. Yeah. Kenny Ortega said that about 90% of the flying that you see is practical with them. That's awesome. Which is so much. That's so dumb. Um, which I can completely understand hating that. <laughs> However, Sarah Jessica Parker, she found the harness very comfortable and she would be asked to be left in the harness between <laughs> takes and she would read or study lines. Like she would like keep a <laughs> copy of the New York Times with her yeah, so that she could just hang in the harness and read. Wow. Uh, there's That's a cool. really famous behind the scenes photo of her reading the New York Times <laughs> in her, in her uh, rigging. It's cool. And good old SJP actually holds my favorite fun fact that I learned in my research of Hocus Pocus. All right. Do you remember how I've referenced that Ancestry DNA TV show called Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah. I've talked about it to you before, and I think in some of our episodes. You have, yes. There's a TV show that would take celebrities back through their, you know, family tree and their lineage. Sarah Jessica Parker went on the show in 2004, and she found out that her 10th great-grandmother, Esther Elwell, was arrested in Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s oh. for, quote, committing sundry acts of witchcraft and, oh. quote, <laughs> choking a neighbor to death. <laughs> yeah, that's way cool. Hell yeah. <laughs> Esther's case never went to court and she escaped with her life, which is how Sarah Jessica Parker came to exist eventually. Wow. That accusation was one of the accusations that ended the Salem witch trials. That's insane. Right. So she got so she said it turned like it totally blew her mind because um, she did this in 2004. So she learned this 11 years after she played a Sanderson sister. Jeez. Yeah. That's cool as hell. I thought so. It's cool as an actor to have like a deep connection to a character that you're playing, but I feel like it's a whole nother level yeah. when it's something like that, that you find out later was part of your identity or your heritage. Man, that's just some serendipity that makes you like really believe that you've done it right. The serendipity of that makes me You've believe that something. like Hocus Pocus was Correct. always meant to exist, you know? Absolutely. And she was always meant to play Sarah. Yeah, it was never anybody else's role. We talk a lot about casting and the magic of casting and the magic of getting the right people in the right place, but that's just like mm. above and beyond to me. That's a whole nother level. Mary Sanderson is played by Kathy and Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, this role was famously offered to Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> who turned it down because she didn't want to play a scary witch Good. in air quotes. As I mentioned before, uh, Bette Midler's involvement was a huge selling point for a lot of people, but especially Kathy. Hmm. She had been a fan of Bette Midler's for years. Uh, she came to set with photos to show Bette Midler how she had rung her doorbell when she was a teenager in New York. <laughs> she credited Bette Aww. with like being the inspiration for her becoming a performer at all. That is Which I so thought is so sweet. Cool. So she got to work with one of her idols, God, which is amazing. true. That's awesome. Yeah, and she said that she loved she loved Mary's character and she loved that she was so much of a kiss up because it allowed her to channel all of the nerves mm-hmm. that she had mm-hmm. working with Bette Midler and performing with Bette Midler and just magnify them and make them funny. 
That's so great. Which I think is great. And that, <laughs> watching it again with this knowledge was amazing. I just appreciated her performance 10 times more. Yeah. Wow. Seeing it that way. Kathy had done a few films before Hocus Pocus, including Sister Act, the year prior, mm-hmm. totally different kind of sister. <laughs> and you might also remember her from Veep, yeah. which is one of my favorite shows ever. And she also had some fun 90s relevant roles. Uh, she's been the voice of Peggy Hill on King of the Hill since 1997. Whoa, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. She voiced Tilly Hippo in Cats Don't Dance, which I can hear that in my brain instantly. Uh, she was Madame Blanche in Hey Arnold. Oh, my God. And she did voice work for other favorites, such as The Wild Thornberries, Rocket Power, and also Little Bill and Oswald. Those were kind of after my time, but still Nickelodeon. No, I remember those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She also appeared on The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, and That's a Raven in the early 2000s. Dude. So clearly, she really stayed in Disney's good graces as well like yeah. throughout the next decades. That's a good, uh, that's a good set of credits right there. I think so. Uh, She said on the Today Show in 2015 that she almost didn't take the role because she was afraid that she would offend real witches by stereotyping a fictitious fairy tale witch. Mm, mm -hmm. And she didn't want to appropriate that, which I think is kind of cool. Like that was her consideration in 1993. Yeah, that's before it was like accepted and okay. Yeah. Right? Uh, She's just a very cool person. It's always been okay, but it's just... Okay, this is another really amazing thing that I learned. Uh, It probably only matters if you're also a fellow indie sad girl, (laughs) like I am. I am. And I think you are, so Mm -hmm. hopefully you'll know this. Mm -hmm. But do you know the singer Samia? No. S-A-M-I-A, Samia? It sounds familiar, but I don't know the music. I absolutely love her. You listener may have heard her come across some of your sad indie playlists, you know, kind of Phoebe Bridgers adjacent. Uh, that is, in fact, Kathy and Jimmy's daughter. No, wait, hold on. Yeah. I'm going to look this person up. Yeah, do it. How do you spell it? Samia, S-A-M-I-A. I feel like you've sent me something from this person. I don't know. I probably have. I love her music. It's great. It looks like her. Yeah. It, it and I just similar. happened upon this information. I was not doing Hocus Pocus research when I found this out. Hmm. And what's also crazy That's is cool. that I have totally overplayed one of her songs called As You Are. It's just a really great song. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> being accepted and being, you know, loved as you are is what it's about. But um, Fat chance. <laughs> yeah, right? Not, not in my life. <laughs> not in my world, but... That's why I listen to the song, I guess, because I'm projecting. And the mix of this song actually features voicemails from both of her parents. And I had no idea. (laughs) This whole time I've been listening to that song. Didn't even know it. And there she is right there. So go and listen to Samia and know that that is Mary Sanderson's daughter. That's absolutely incredible. I love it. Max is played by Omri Katz. Emphasis on the cats. Right? (laughs) And most people probably do know this. They probably heard it. But supposedly Leo DiCaprio was up for this role. Yeah. It's it's said in a lot of places, in a lot of ways. Uh, they saw like 600 kids. They saw so many kids for this role. They actually they actually turned Omri down. Like he didn't get the part. Huh. And they called him back way later and said, hey, never mind. Can you come back? <laughs> hmm. Which is a crazy, you know, dealing with that in your mind, trying to be cast for something. I can't. I don't have the stomach to be an actor. Yeah. But Leo turned down the role to instead pursue What's Eating Gilbert Grape. One of my favorite movies. God, I love that movie. And yeah, I mean, he earned acclaim from that movie. Yeah. Like, imagine Hocus Pocus with Leo DiCaprio as Max. <laughs> I would have had an even bigger crush on Max. To, it would have been that's a, just a different vibe. Yeah. But it still would have been very similar to what it actually ended up being. Yeah, I think. because I think Omri had the right balance of like 
you know, boyish, but cocky. I think it just would have been a bigger deal. I think it would have been very successful. Yeah, I do. I think it would have been a bigger deal earlier. Yeah. If he had been the lead. Yeah. And, but I don't know, like, would he have ended up in Titanic after that? I just, Gilbert I don't Grape know. really made his career. Yeah, that was it his It made him famous. Absolutely. But do um, you think it could have been Hocus Pocus? Like, could Hocus Pocus have been that film for him? I don't think it would have been as... Uh, mesmerizing to watch him perform. Yeah. Because the role of Max isn't... Isn't... It's not... There's not a heavy emotional performance. It's nothing that's mind-blowing. Right. Not that I wouldn't have killed to be Max. I'm just, you sure. know, saying like Gilbert Grape... Is a different level of, yeah, of acting. That's a whole nother mm-hmm. level of like just surreal watching someone act. Right. I don't, I don't think it would have done as much for him if he'd been in Hocus Pocus. I tend to agree with you. I don't think so either. And that's okay because I feel like Omri was made for this role, you know? I do think he had, like I said, the right balance. Like he was cocky enough, but he was also like innocent enough. He had that like I think like, he was boyish. right for it. Yeah, I think it worked. Yeah. But he was known at the time. He had a longstanding role as John Ross Ewing on Dallas. Hmm. And he also appeared on this sitcom that you may or may not know from the 90s or maybe even the 80s, The Torkelsons. No, I don't know it. Uh, that starred Lee Norris, who was Minkus from Boy Meets World. No way. Okay. And uh, Vanessa Shaw, who played Allison, also appeared on The Torkelsons. Interesting. So they knew each other. Okay. And I believe Jason Martin, too, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. That's funny. Danny, who I just... <laughs> freaking love her yeah. so much. I love the character. I love the actress. Danny is played by Thora Birch. We said this before. Yeah. She was 11 years old at the time, playing an eight-year-old. Mm. And Kenny Ortega told the story of meeting her on one of the behind-the-scenes shorts. You can see it. It's really funny. Yeah. Uh, but apparently they only had to see like 10 or so actresses before they landed on Thora. And in her first meeting <laughs> with Kenny Ortega, he said when he walked in, she was sitting with her feet up on the table and uh, when he came in, she like hurried and jumped down and she was like worried. And he was like, no, 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 be comfortable. It's OK. Mm-hmm. So he said that she like put her feet back up on the table and she's like, so do you want to talk about the business or other things? <laughs> <laughs> and he said other things. And so he said they just started talking. And from then on, like she ran the meeting. And that's so great. He it was he was sold. I was so impressed. I don't know why. Probably because I was, you know, watching it again in preparation for recording a podcast yeah, episode about it, about it mm-hmm. talking about it and watching her this time just impressed me. I have I always, it never really occurred to oh me. Oh my God. I've always been God. so impressed by her. Even her like behind the scenes. She's just very much like old for her age. She's very yeah poised and like can communicate so well mm-hmm. and her acting, her like genuine, the acting behind what she's doing, the choices that she makes as an actress. Yes. Especially when she like pats him on the back. Right. When she, she gets him to commit to a Peter Pan. Yeah. And she the goes, next year and then she pats him on the back. I'm like, oh my God. Like The decisions that she was making. That's either like very incredible directing or, you know. Very incredible acting. Probably a combination probably of Probably a combination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She understood the assignment, kids. Either way, she understood the assignment, mm. and I just genuinely feel like they don't make child actors like her anymore. <laughs> uh, she's one of the best examples I can think of. of they don't child make actor. them like they used to. I feel like she sold every bit of her role and then some. 100%. But she got her start on the pre-Seinfeld, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus show, Day by Day. Wow. And she appeared in several other films and shows, including Doogie Howser, hmm. before she landed the role of Danny. Amazing. And since Hocus Pocus, she's had primarily film roles. She appeared as Tina in Now and Then, which that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane in American Beauty. Yeah. She had a, <laughs> I thought that was really random. She had a brief voice acting role in uh, My Life as a Teenage Robot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> of Man, all things. that show 
tripped me out. That's a that's a weird show. That's a really strange, especially the one where uh, she turns off her her dream or she tr- that's turns literally off. Literally, what I was thinking of. I can't believe you just said that, that episode freaked me out. I thought about oh, we could cover that. Oh my god, we should. Uh, and she's still acting today. She played Mary in one of the later seasons of The Walking Dead. Oh, I didn't know that. She okay. was apparently also in a TV movie, The Gabby Petito Story, which I haven't seen. Oh, wow. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah. Apparently she was in that movie too. Okay. Now that I have spoken of Max and Danny, mm-hmm. I told Christian, so we were reviewing our History of Halloween podcast mm. uh, as it was about to go out before we recorded this one. Yeah. And when I was polishing my notes, I had... A huge revelation. It just hit me. Yeah. I've okay. I don't mean to toot my own horn or anything, but I have not seen one other source, no other article, no. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have not seen anybody else make this connection. I've been excited to hear about this. Okay. I, I hope I react appropriately. <laughs> Get my surprise birthday party face on. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. <laughs> I want to know if you thought about this. Actually. Uh, let's see. Let's find out. Max and Danny's last name. Is Denison. Do you get the relevance to Denison and Halloween? <gasps> Denison Company. I feel Whoa. like this was a direct reference to the Denison Company that Christian mentioned in last week's episode. With the uh, the bogey books. They were some, yes, they were some of the original adopters of Halloween. They produced costumes, decorations, the bogey books, like you said, <gasps> from 1909 to the 1940s. Holy I think it was a very shit. early Halloween you know, like if David Krishner likes Halloween, like he says, then he, he does, would know about the Denison Company. Yeah, yeah. I was disappointed in myself for not immediately making the joke during your episode, <laughs> so do forgive me for that. I mean, but never crossed my mind. I can't, I can't chalk this up to coincidence. No, that's I incredible. I think they're named Denison because of the Denison Company and the Denison Company's impact on mm-hmm. American Halloween. Hmm. That's my that's my thesis statement. Right no, there. I think you're absolutely correct. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for making my research sound like a bigger deal. I mean, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I appreciate that. Listener, if you haven't heard that, definitely go back. But this this just had so much like relevance to the nostalgic Halloween that we know and love. Yeah. And I love that they named them Denison. They were throwing it all the way that back. That was their last name. You know, whenever she calls him Mr. Denison in the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, Max tells Banks, you're a Denison now. You're a Denison now. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Had to throw that in there. I think you're right. I felt good about it. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. Man. <laughs> oh my God. I just heard a word and associated it with another <laughs> word. That's all I did. I didn't make the connection. <laughs> didn't cross my mind. I didn't even remember their last name. Vanessa Shaw, who played Allison, yeah. had a couple film credits herself, including Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut mm. and the 2006 The Hills Have Eyes. But she's quoted in a lot of interviews as saying that she hates horror movies and she's afraid of them. So I think it's funny that that's like her like what she's trifecta career yeah. is two really horror movies and then Hocus Pocus. Allison. Oh, Allison. Oh, kiss me. I'm Allison. Uh, Sloth. I mean, Ludo. I mean, Billy Butcherson. <laughs> the zombie ex-suitor and crowd favorite. Nice. Is played by Doug Jones. I love Billy. Uh, just before Hocus Pocus, he played the thin clown in Batman Returns. No way. And he went on to do some fun and spooky roles, including playing several robots and mummies. <laughs> he was a contortionist in Tales from the Crypt and on the Weird Al show. Okay. He was an alien in Outer Limits. He appeared in Keenan and Kel, Buffy... Party of Five, Rocky and Bullwinkle, hmm. even Smash Mouth's music video for All Star. What the freak? Hey, now. Put your head back on. Put your head on. Go <laughs> play. 
Good. Nice. Yeah. I'm glad we did that. Uh, we just um, had a moment. <laughs> this is what it's actually like to hang out with us. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you've ever wondered. Okay. This is kind of an out there one. But for any 80s and 90s kids, uh-huh. it might ring a bell. Do you remember the McDonald's advertisements that featured a character called Mac Tonight? They were mostly in the 80s. I don't- No, I don't know if I've ever seen that. I've seen them before on the internet. I didn't see them when they were airing. But there's this like cabaret, piano man kind of vibe to the commercials because they're like, you can eat McDonald's for dinner too kind of thing. Oh, that was a thing? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Wow. You'd be shocked. (laughs) Interesting. At the things that they had to tell the American public. Had no idea we could have it for dinner. Uh Uh-huh. The character of Mac tonight is playing a piano on top of a building in a city skyline And he's singing in like that jazzy piano kind of way. Mm -hmm. And he has a giant half moon for a head. Wait a minute. You're okay. I saw, I saw Christian's eyes get it. Yeah. I saw him remember. I have seen something like this before. Well, that's Doug Jones. the half moon face that gets me. That's Doug Jones. That's Doug Jones. Mm -hmm. My God. Crazy, right? That's crazy. He's half moon face. He's Mr. Mac tonight. He's half moon face. Yes, he's Mr. Mac tonight. They called those ads McDonald Land. Yeah. And I remember them because the Hamburglar was in them a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, they had like live action ads with sure. people oh, yeah. playing these Those characters. I remember. Those mm-hmm. I do recall. I also have one here for you, Christian. All right. He played a ghoul in Mike Flanagan's Ouija, Origins of Evil. No way. Mm-hmm. And he's still going strong today. He played the amphibian man in The Shape of Water in 2017. He appeared in the wait, 2020 DuckTales. Wait. He played... The creature. The amphibian man. Mm-hmm. In shape of water. That's correct. I care about that most of all. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. Holy shit. It is a big deal. I didn't think okay. you cared about it, but yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a good movie. Sorry, I'm just blown away right now. That movie was monumental. I, who knew we had so much to say about Billy? I mean, Sloth. I mean, Ludo. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in What We Do in the Shadows. And of course, he reprised his role as Billy in Hocus Pocus 2. Very cool. Wow. He's such a great character actor. Yeah, he really to is. To have that list of credits. My God. Pretty wild. Shape of water. Then we have Sean Murray as the human, Thackeray Binks. Yeah. Before Hocus Pocus, Sean scored a minor role in the Robert De Niro, Leo DiCaprio film, which also features Carla uh, Gugino. No way. Another Mike Flanagan favorite. All these crossovers. Mm-hmm. He went on to do several TV movies before he landed his biggest role 10 years after Hocus Pocus as Timothy McGee in in NCIS. Gotcha. And I think that just finished this year or last year. Okay. Wow. Binks' voice, of course, is supplied by the 90s staple, (laughs) Jason Marson. Mm -hmm. He was already friends with Omri Katz because they worked together on Erie, Indiana. Mm, Okay. And I've been told several times we need to cover that. So yeah, yeah, I've heard that. That's in the plans. He also had several voice roles and was a guest on Blossom before he landed recurring roles in both, which is, this is how I knew him, uh, Full House and Boy Meets World. He originally auditioned for the part of Eric, and then he was cast as Eric's best friend. I need to look him up. Because they liked him so much. I need to see what he looks like. Oh my God, you don't know what he looks like? Let me make sure. Let me make oh, sure. Oh, I love him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew you would. I know Jason Mars. He also famously voiced Max Goof. In a Goofy movie in 1995. No way, really. And he's done so many other things. He staked his claim on early 2000s cartoons mm-hmm. because he appeared on Recess, Pepper Ann, Invader Zim, oh House Mouse, Totally Spies, My Life as a Teenage Robot, Teen Titans, Codename Kids Next Door, uh, WITCH, K 
Kim Possible, and my very favorite role, cartoon role of his, uh, as Tino in The Weekenders. Wow. The lead character on The Weekenders. That's cool. That I talk about all the time. Which his voice is just so, I just, I know him so well. He also, I totally forgot about this, but he was the voice of Kovu in The Lion King 2. Hmm. And nowadays he's like doing every DuckTales and DC and Justice League and Marvel thing yeah. that you can find, pretty much. And he attends a lot of the, the conventions. That's way cool. But he's awesome. He is my childhood. Like, that that voice is so distinct to me. Yeah. I didn't realize he was in so much stuff besides this. Yeah. I just never put it together. And he talked a lot about the role of Banks and the technology that they were incorporating with it because it was the first uh, feature film to incorporate CG to this degree. Yeah. To, like, mouth flap the animal talking while the voice actor Pretty was Pretty impressive for the time. And it was also the first time, yeah, that they applied a CG skeleton over a real cat's head. Huh. And, like, blended it together. Interesting. Wow. And they used the CG mouth movement with some of the animatronics. So it was like they did all of it together. They just blended it all together. And it works. It's better than some today. Agreed. But toward the end of production... Disney decided that they didn't really care for Sean Murray's voice. Yeah. Uh, they didn't think it was quite right for the era. Hmm. And so they recruited Jason Marsden to voice the character instead. <laughs> so wild. not only did he voice the cat, but he ended up dubbing Sean Murray's lines too. So, which is why it confused the hell out of me when I rewatched it when I was older. Yeah. And I was like, that's Jason Marsden's voice, but that's not his face. Yeah, that's weird. Because he dubbed Sean Murray's lines. He dubbed. The human. Yeah. <laughs> That's why his voice sounds so ethereal the whole time. Right? And so, it like, makes weird so and off and otherworldly. Yes. That's why. That's crazy to me. That's another pretty well-known fact, too. But it's still, yeah. when I before all the articles were coming out and everything was discussed, that confused me a lot because I wow. knew his voice so well. That's so funny. I have one last little note about casting. Okay. And that is that Gary and Penny Marshall, who were Hollywood royalty, basically, mm -hmm. they play the unhappy husband and wife whose home is invaded by the Sanderson sisters. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love them. If you didn't know, in real life, the two of them are brother and sister. <laughs> I did not know that. Yes. Wow. And Gary Marshall also directed uh, Princess Diaries and Pretty Woman. No way. That's the man. I should know who they are. I should know these people. Yeah. And I I did, but I didn't I didn't know that or I didn't remember that he had directed Princess Diaries. I was like, wow. oh yeah. Oh my God. It's insane. Pretty crazy. And you can tell they're totally re resemble each other. Yeah, thinking about it. Mm -hmm. When you put it in that light. I suppose that we should also mention the actual stars of this movie. <laughs> there were two principal cats that had been trained for many, many years who held the role of Banks. Yes. <laughs> And they adopted for this film six cats from a shelter to do specific tasks. Oh, yeah. So some of them were good at running. Mm -hmm. Some of them were good at jumping. Some of them really just liked to be held yeah. and purr. Aww, and babies. so those six cats would help out the two principal cats, which I think is amazing. We love our cats around here. We love our cats. Cat actors. Oh we my love gosh. cat actors. We love black cats. Go adopt one right now. <laughs> Go adopt Be one. nice to black cats. Be nice to them. They're like some of the sweetest cats out there, you guys. They're not evil. They're wonderful. And they're great actors. Okay. <laughs> They're so talented. They're so Think talented. Think of all the money you can make if you just adopt a black cat. <laughs> uh, Vanessa Shaw talked about like one of them was like trained to like, uh, you know, bat them in the face when when Binks is telling them like, you shouldn't have opened the book. Yeah, yeah. And that one, that one just would like to swat at them all the time. Well, that's just, just too funny. That's freaking adorable. I have always been completely enthralled with the way that they got the cats to cooperate in this movie. Yeah, and it's tough. And it's one of the main reasons why. 
I always wanted a talking animal mm-hmm. <laughs> my whole life. I just, I was convinced that one day an animal was going to speak to me in, in English. Yeah. I, I knew it was going to happen. And I mean, I communicate with my cats now, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of wraps up the cast of Hocus Pocus. Hmm. And I don't want to get too sentimental, but it's really amazing to me when like-minded people come together to create something that really like endures time like, like this. Right. But I'll leave the emotion for the conclusion next week. Yeah. So don't worry. We do like to get emotional around here. We do. Man. Next week, which is going to be Halloween weekend. Yeah, buddy. We're going to be back to dive into the darker and more mature elements of Hocus Pocus, mm-hmm. including the plot, as well as a lot more of the pop culture and nostalgia that you know and love that surround Hocus Pocus. It's going to get pretty dark. I hope that you guys are having the absolute best spooky season of your lives. Mm. Truly, just live it up. Absolutely. Do all the spooky things. Live it up, y'all. And we're grateful for you spending any any part of your spooky season with us. We are so grateful for you guys. If you feel like it, go leave a rating, leave a review, leave a comment if they're nice to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, follow us on the socials. Yeah, all That's that That's Pretty stuff. Dark Podcast. You can email us and say what's up. That's pretty dark podcast, gmail.com. You can tell us about your Halloween traditions. Tell us what you're doing this year. Or how you're incorporating us into your Halloween traditions. Yeah. Are you listening to us while you carve your jack-o'-lanterns? <laughs> more than anything. You just need more of us in your Halloween. That's right. More of us That's in your fact. ears all the time. And we need more of you guys. So. And we, yeah, we need more of you. That's right. <laughs> it's a mutual need. Aw. Well, cool. Until next week and Halloween. We love you, pretty darklings. <laughs> we'll see you soon. We love you, you weird little... <laughs> Pretty darklings. You pretty weird darklings, y'all. <laughs> pretty weird darklings. That's right. They're pretty, but they're weird and dark. <laughs> that's me. Hey, that's us. <laughs> All right, bye, y'all. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.